Father, we, we are comforted by the songs of grace that you have providentially had us sing this morning. God, you, you have taken us all the way through the gospel story and even into our sanctification, and that though you give us blessed assurance, and all of this power lies behind the God who is the Lord of hosts, who commands the earth to come into existence by his own words, who calls mighty powers to defend us. You're the same God that walks through suffering with us. You're the same God that has called us to walk through the deep waters, but you have never left us. And though you're sovereign over us, you are with us. And we, we praise you, our great God, for this has been your plan from before time began. There's no plan B for you. You, from beginning to end, are orchestrating all of your works with, with great power and great precision. And so we can trust you. God, even what the enemy means for evil, you turn it for our good. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. So we rejoice in your sovereignty over us, and yet we realize we live in a sin-cursed world. And Father, some of us here suffer physically, mentally, emotionally. God, we, we, we suffer because of our own sin and because of others' sins done against us and because there's sin in this world. And yet we look to you, our great God. You have said that you are the God of peace. You, you have promised that you will keep our minds stayed on you who dwell in your peace. Because you are not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And God, so as we, as we look in our text this morning, we pray that you would open up to us the realities of who Jesus is. Open our minds to behold Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Even in the Old Testament, God, you have, you have said it's all about him. And we need you to open our minds as we turn to Exodus 5 this morning that you would show us Christ. He's the only thing that will satisfy us. He is the, he's the only one that will make sense of what's happening in our lives right now. So we ask that you would open our eyes to see and behold him and believe him. And God, we, we do ask for those among us who are fearful in their suffering, who, who don't understand that though they have obeyed you, they suffer still, God, you would give them peace. You would grant them peace because their minds have been stayed on you. God, you have said in your word that the, that the peace of Christ would dwell in us as our minds are stayed on your word. So we pray that you would do that. We ask that as we 
get peace even through our sufferings. We would be a testimony to those around us, and we ask that your word would go out from here, from our corporate witness and our individual witness to our, our non-Christian friends who live in this city and, and the cities connected to Corvallis. We ask that your, the mission of making yourself known to people who have not known you before would continue on through, through our lives and, and through the witness of our mouth, through the gospel. So we, we, with confidence, we ask that you would give us boldness to take the good news to our friends. Not be afraid to, to say words of, of good tidings, of great joy. God, we ask that you would show us conversions. God, let us see souls saved and worshiping you because that is what you have come to do. Father, we ask that you would also help our gospel partners in this area. We pray for Christ Church, even as they have opened up a new coffee shop. We ask that you would use that to further the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ here and beyond as they partner with friends in Mexico and, and, and beyond in that. We ask that they would be faithful to the gospel even this morning as they preach. God, would, would every line be drawn to our great and precious Christ? For he is, he is more beautiful and believable than, than anything else that we can preach. We also pray for suburban Christian church, and we ask that you would, you would give them great grace as they open your word and, and tell of the good news of Jesus and, and give them gospel boldness to take that good news out, to live it, to apply it to their lives, and, and tell it to others. God, and we pray that many would come to know you here. God, would you help us to be a stronghold for the gospel here, right next to the campus, right next to Oregon State University. God, we ask for nothing less than, than for you to take your grace and, and spread it across that campus and across our city and, and across the nation so your name might be glorified. And God, even as we're fearful when we do that, we pray that we, we would go with the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the, the sovereign help of our God as we do it. God, we do ask that you would be with us this morning, as we open your word, would you dwell among your people in, in the way that you promised to? Show us the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel as we gather, we pray. All these things in Christ's name, amen. So good morning. My name is Doug Payne. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. Please, um, please stop me at the at the door or in the back or wherever I am. If you see me, please introduce yourself. I, I would love to get to know you and maybe have a lunch or coffee with you. Uh, any of the elders as well or the staff would love that. And if you want to know more about our church, I think one of the best things you can do is just find one of the, the members here and, and talk to them about it. Um, and they would, they would love to have a conversation with you. Um, congregation, I... I was reminded, especially church family members of our church, I was reminded by a, a podcast I was listening to a few weeks ago um, how important it is for us to tell each other that we love each other. And, um, and this older brother, Ray Ortland in the faith, encouraged pastors uh, and asked them, when's the last time you told your congregation you love them? I tell my family that I love them all the time. Some of you are getting squirmy already. You don't, <laughs> you're like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. But 
I want you to know, I tell my family I love them all the time, several times a day. I can't remember the last time I told you that I loved you. And uh, I just want you to know that I do. That uh, it's a joy to give up, uh, to give my life to the work of the ministry, and you all make that a joy. Hebrews says that uh, um, to obey your elders, to obey your leaders, so that they might give an account with joy. So many of you have made that such, such an honor that one day I will give an account for, for your souls and I get to do it with joy. I just want you to know I love you. Um, and uh, as I preach or, you know, as we go through this, uh, you should know that, that uh, God has put love in my heart for you. So I'm very thankful for you. So as we start this morning, I was reminded as I was studying in Exodus 5 for this Sunday of a man named uh, Sheldon Van Auken. Have any have anyone heard that name before? Okay, good. I get to introduce you to him. His he's best known for his relationship with C.S. Lewis and his his book Severe Mercy, as a title based on a letter C.S. Lewis wrote to him after his wife had died. And one review of the of the book Severe Mercy says this. It's an unusually strong love story. It's true. It begins with a man and a woman and ends with a man and his God. Sheldon and his wife, who he affectionately called Davy, met in their, their youth. They quickly fell in love, and uh, it, it, was, it was a storied love story. And they wanted their love, they longed for their love to be, to be special, right? Like all young lovers do. And they, they saw, they wanted to be, you know, they wanted to be different than what they saw around them. The, uh, you know, the love stories that were cheap and banal. So they sought to protect their love as the highest good. The, their love became a, not only a love affair with each other, but with love itself. And Van Auken says, we saw self as the ultimate danger to love, which it is. We didn't see it as an ultimate evil of hell, which it also is. We saw only the danger to our love. Still, we turned away from it, that is self, because we loved our love. I want to ask you a question. What happens when you love something that is, that's finite and limited, like love, when you, when you love something like that, a thing, as if it were ultimate, a person, a career, a relationship, what happens when you do that? That, that thing, whatever it is, cannot bear the weight of your love. It, it, can't, it can't handle it. It's, it's not strong enough because it's not ultimate. And you find that you cannot do without that thing, whatever it is. Because you think it's the only thing that will satisfy you, the only thing that will, will help you keep going in life, the, the only thing, the thing that you live and breathe for. And like the Van Aukens did with their love, you will turn into something monstrous. 
Sometimes. Now, here's the point, okay? Here's the whole point of that illustration, that introduction. The only thing that will give us freedom from that non-ultimate thing is for that thing to be taken away. Sometimes that's how God gets our gaze off of finite things and non-ultimate things and puts them on himself. Often, suffering is the only instrument that turns our gaze away from the thing to God the only one who can satisfy. Why is this? Well, in in one sense, it's a mystery. I, I don't know fully all the reasons why God uses suffering to do this, but the testimony of Scripture is that He does. He uses suffering to, to wean us off the lesser things and put it on Himself. And that's the testimony of Exodus 5. You can turn there. Exodus you're not familiar with the Christian Bible, it's broken into Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is the front half of the Christian Bible, starts with Genesis, then Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament Christian Bible. And if I could say one thing about what Moses is trying to do in Exodus 5, in the retelling of this story, Moses is trying to show that suffering shows us our lack of self-sufficiency and our need for an all-sufficient Savior. Suffering shows us our lack of self-sufficiency and our need for an all-sufficient Savior. Suffering brings us to an end of ourselves and shows us our need for God. And that's what the narrative is going to do this morning. With, uh, it's going to take us on a journey in three points, right? The surprising path of suffering, it's, it starts with obedience. The sinister side of suffering how the evil one wants to use suffering in our lives. And then third, the surprising good of suffering. In coming to an end of ourselves, God is seen to be more than enough. So the surprising path of suffering, the sinister side of suffering, and the surprising good of suffering. And we will take up those three after we read. Hear God's holy word. Moses writes, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on them, on, on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." 
So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw they were in trouble. And when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is God's word. So we see the surprising path of suffering is, is obedience. In, in, in verses 1 through 3, we see that Moses and Aaron are doing exactly what God told them to do in the previous chapter. Go to Pharaoh and tell him all of these things. And what do Moses and Aaron do? They go to Pharaoh and tell him all of these things. And this afterward, it reminds us that as what has happened before. God has appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And this, this burning bush was burned but was not consumed, pointing us to the self-sufficiency of God. As the fire did not need the bush for fuel, so God needs nothing. He depends on no one and nothing for existence. That's the kind of God the Bible presents. Absolutely self-sufficient over everything. The, God calls Moses to a task. Do you remember? God says, I'm going to have you deliver my people, and Moses objects to this. And, and God answers all his objections by, by three things. He reveals his character to him. This is who I am, and I will be with you. He reveals his powerful work through the signs and wonders, and he reveals his anger and mercy. His anger lasts for a moment, but his, his mercy lasts through the night. So afterward, Moses and Aaron do exactly what God tells them to do. And what happens? There's confrontation. They tell Pharaoh exactly what God says. Did you notice that? They said, thus says the Lord. 
This is, the, this is the phrase of the prophets. This is the phrase of the prophets of Israel later on in, in the Old Testament. They'll come to the kings of Israel and they'll say, here's what God said. And that was supposed to carry weight because these are God's words, not mine. They were prophets. They were telling everything that God had said for them to say. And Moses, the first of the prophets, uses this phrase. And as Yahweh's prophet, he speaks God's very word to Pharaoh. And one of the surprising things for Moses and Aaron, and probably for us, is that obedience to God's words lead to suffering. So in verse 2, you see, Pharaoh, you see Pharaoh's response. Who, who is this God? Who, who is the Lord? I don't know him. And Pharaoh's not asking for information about this one. He, he, is, say, he, he, is, he is making a statement of confrontation. The Lord is making himself known to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is saying, there is, I, I don't know this one. And who am I to obey him? The Lord is no one to me. So Moses is showing who Pharaoh really is, someone who is setting himself up against the most high God. That's who Pharaoh is. So if you, if you struggle last week to, as we talked about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, if you say, well, that's not fair that God would harden Pharaoh's heart, let this scene show you that God is not being unjust with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. In hardening Pharaoh's heart, God is giving Pharaoh exactly what he wants. And if, friend... If you are here today as a non-Christian, you're very welcome in this place. We're so glad that you're here. But every one of us, at some point in our life, have been like Pharaoh and have said, who is the Lord that he should tell me what to do? All of us have been there. And the Lord, in some mercy, is coming to Pharaoh and has not slaughtered him right now, and has said, you should obey the Lord. And I would just come to you, friend, and say, give ear to him. He's the powerful one. He's the self-sufficient one. He's the one who will judge us for all of our sins. And you will see some surprising mercy at the end. But the harsh reply from Pharaoh to Moses and Aaron's obedience brings out a different tone for, for Moses and Aaron, right? In verse 3, you see that uh, after the harsh reply, they come back with, with a, a different word for Pharaoh, kind of like maybe if, if you're going to your job and you're going to your boss and demanding a raise, uh, you might change your tone if he came back and said, who are you to tell me to give you a raise? This is how, kind of how Moses and Aaron are coming back to Pharaoh. They say in verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And here is what he wants us to do. Go and sacrifice to him in the wilderness. And if he doesn't, if we don't do that, he's going to punish us either by the sword or by pestilence. And friends, what we see is that the surprising path to suffering starts with obedience. And in a sin-cursed world, this is just the way it is. So let's not, friends, be triumphalistic. Obedience perfect obedience led Jesus to a cross. 
And is a servant greater than his master? And one commentator said it like this, God's people must not assume that carrying out his command will increase their own comfort. So again, if, if you're not a Christian and you're among us, I just want to let you know that this is what Christians actually believe. Obeying Jesus does not make your life necessarily easier. If you say Christians are, you know, they have their head in the clouds and it's all pie in the sky, Christians are not to believe that. We should not assume that following Jesus means our comfort will be increased. Following Jesus means we follow a crucified Messiah. And did Jesus say this in John 15? They hated me. They will also hate you. It's just, a, it's just the way it is. This, this path is surprising, but it reminds us that suffering is not necessarily a sign of God's displeasure with you. And that prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's good favor upon you. Suffering shows us our, our lack of self-sufficiency and our need for an all-sufficient Savior. But friends, I understand that this can make us doubt and feel anxious. We, we, maybe we think it is better not to obey God sometimes, you know? If it just leads to suffering, why should I obey God? But this is exactly the strategy the evil one wants you to think. This is exactly the strategy he uses to get you to think that God is not good. And that leads to our next point, the sinister side of suffering. How, how the evil one wants to use our suffering. How does he want to use it? He, here's, here's, he, he displays it through the work of Pharaoh. This is the evil one and Pharaoh are like mirror images of each other. And, and, and Pharaoh is doing exactly what the evil one wants him to do. He, so he, the Pharaoh, sends them back to their burdens. He piles more burdens on top of them on top of the other burdens, and then he offers no help. This is, this is exactly the strategy of evil people like Pharaoh copying their, their father, the devil. And you can see how it happens in verses 4 through 19. He tells them in verses 4 and 5, get back to your burdens. And these were heavy, unbearable burdens. Chapter 1, verse 11 tells us, and Pharaoh wants to keep God's people under their burdens so they will not look to the one who can heal them, who can take their burdens away from them. Friend, he wants you to stay under your burden of sin and bow you low so you will not look to Christ, who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The evil one wants you bowed down. He wants you to think that this suffering, even if it is through obedience, is something from God in a way that he will not relieve it. He will weigh you down. And friends, he will even weigh you down with religious rules as long as that keeps you under a burden. He will keep you under the burden of your own sin or addiction or your own longings, but he will also use religiosity to keep you under your burden. He hates you. So, so, so why does Pharaoh do this? Well, well Pharaoh, Pharaoh is selfish. 
He wants people to serve him. He, he wants to build his own kingdom. He wants power. He, wants, he has no time for rival gods, right? He, he has a panoply of gods, right, that sort of he can control, but he has no time for, uh, he has only time for domesticated gods. He has no place for a God that demands everything. And notice how he does this is through oppression. He, he oppresses the people. He sends burdens on them burdens on them. This is the sinister strategy of the evil one. He sends them back to their burdens and then takes away any help, anything that will help them, like the straw. The straw was, was meant to add, it, add to the clay to make it easier, to make the, it easier to make the bricks and, and the bricks to be more sturdy and firm. And, and he takes that away and says, you will no longer have someone do that for you. You have to go find it yourself. This is just like the evil one. And, he, and then he beats them for not meeting their quota in verses 6 through 14. And it reminds me, it reminds me of, of, of what uh, Martin Luther experienced. You know, because religion can do this to us too, can't it? Martin Luther, he wanted salvation from his sins. And, and he thought that God was asking him to do it in his own strength through, through prayers and through, through, through giving of himself to, to being a monk and, and through e- even self-torture. And, and, and so uh, M- Martin Luther would give himself to all of these things. And this is, is exactly the burden the evil one wants to put on people. Get to your prayers and your, your burdens, Martin. Pr- pray more, Martin. Whip yourself over your unclean thoughts, Martin. And Mar- Martin Luther says this. It was, it was as if God gave him a mop to clean up his room, his little cell, but then left the faucet on so the work was never done. That's, a, that's exactly the picture of what religion can do to you, friend. It can heap on more and more burdens. I I need to please God by doing this. I need to please God by praying more. I need to please God by doing all of this. And Jesus says, just drop all of that. You're like Martin Luther in his room trying to clean something up that can never be cleaned. The water's going to keep running. And the evil one tells you, just try harder. Just try harder. And then he beats you for failing. He says, why, why aren't you doing this? So Moses and Aaron obey God, and what do the people get? They get suffering. And this is how the evil one wants to use suffering, friends. He wants to tell you that you're not good enough, that God doesn't love you, that you, you must be some suffering for something you did or, 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 or somehow the way you are. And the evil one wants to pile those burdens on you over and over again. And Moses and Aaron as, as mediators are coming to Pharaoh and, and saying, let my people go. It's not only them, but in 15 through 19, the, the foremen of God's people, they take up this cause as well. They take up Moses' cause as well, and, and they tell Pharaoh, look, this is on your people. You need to stop doing this. We can't make the bricks, and then you beat us, but it's your people's fault. 
This is the sinister side of suffering, how the evil one wants to use it. He takes our burdens and stacks them on top of each other and causes God's people then to do two things, to misunderstand their identity and to accuse God. This is what the evil one wants to do to you, friends, to misunderstand your identity. Did you notice in verse 15 and 16, the four men say, hey, you're, do, you're doing this and you are wrong, but we are still your servants. They see themselves as Pharaoh's servants, but God himself had called them his firstborn son. And they're coming, pleading their case as Moses' servants when they're not Moses' servants anymore. In God's eyes, they are already the firstborn son. These people were no longer slaves of Pharaoh. They have another identity, but the evil one does not want them to remember this identity. And then they go on to accuse Moses and Aaron, the servants of God, the very prophets of God that are speaking God's word in verses 20 and 21. They meet him after their meeting as Moses and Aaron are waiting for them, and they go meet him, and they said, Moses, this is on you, man. You've made us stink before Pharaoh. You have caused all of this suffering. Gage and I were talking about this in the office. Don't you, don't you hear the hiss of the serpent in Genesis 3 in all of this? It was, it was the serpent that made me do this, Eve says. It was the woman you gave me, God. And the evil one wants you, he wants you to turn on each other. They, he would want this church to turn on each other over foolish, silly things. Maybe even because of suffering and start to blame and infight. And, and God is saying, remember your identity. You are no longer a slave of sin. You are no longer a slave of the evil one. You're not his servant. You are my firstborn if you're in Christ Jesus. Don't accuse, and so much so that God's own mediator actually ends up accusing God as well at the end. Moses accuses God himself in verses 22 through 23, but this is what suffering does when the evil one gets a hold of it, but it's not the end of the story. Suffering shows us our lack of self-sufficiency and our utter need, our utter dependence for an all-sufficient Savior. This is, there is the surprising good of suffering as well. In coming to an end of ourselves, God is seen to be more than enough. In verses 22 and 23, Moses is not only accusing God. These, actu these accusations are also realizations. Moses is turning to the Lord. Did you notice that phrase? At the end there, then Moses in verse 22 turned to the Lord and said, O Lord. This, this phrase is used several times out the Old Testament, and every time turning to the Lord is an, is an act of prayer. In 2 Kings 23, 25, 2 Chronicles 15, 4, the, the kings, some kings are coming to the Lord after, after their sin and repenting and turning to him. And Moses is turning, even, even though he has, has accused God, 
we also learn that he, too, is turning to God. He, he is realizing the mystery of providence. Here he turns to God. The people say, Moses, you've done this. Aaron, you've done this. And Moses says, God, you're actually in control of all things. But why have you done this evil to this people? We, we know that God is not the author of evil. He can't be tempted by sin. We know that. But Moses is offering his questions back to God with all honesty. He's laying his burdens before God. And he's saying, why is this happening? You said you're the all-sufficient one. You, you, you appeared to me in the burning bush. You said you're eternal, and you're not delivering your people. Moses had, and the people had a wrong expectation of when this would happen, and that's oftentimes the case. God's deliverance does not always coincide with our expectations. So the question is, friend, where do you turn during suffering? Where, where do you turn in your suffering? The answer may explain what you worship. What, what you worship is the thing you think will save you, right? So, for example, do you turn to eating and drinking in your suffering? You, you are worshiping yourself, right? Because as long as you feel good or have a full stomach or the, the pain is numbed, then everything will be fine. That is your Savior, do you just try to work harder? Do you just put more hours in at the office? Do you, do, you, do you just try to be more successful? You're worshiping security and power. If I have enough money or I'm successful, everything will be okay because that is my Savior. Notice where Moses turns. He turns to God. He is honest with Him. He lays out His burdens before Him. He doesn't hold back. When's the last time you went to God like this? God, I believe you are the Lord. Why have you allowed this to happen? Why? You can cry out to God, why? You can, you can cry out to him in your suffering. And he is teaching us where to go in our suffering, Moses is. He's teaching us. He's also teaching us what a mediator does. He goes to God for his people. And friends, this is all pointing to a greater mediator whose name is Jesus Christ. He's the true mediator between God and man. Centuries later, after Moses, Jesus Christ would take his role as mediator through the, a position on a cross. And he stood between God and man. He represented man before God by taking their punishment, death for their sins. And then he rose again from the grave, finally conquering sin and death. And as the mediator, he ascended back to God and, and fully, finally, and eternally makes intercession for those who put their trust in him. But he not only represents man to God, he also represents God to man. As Moses represented God to Pharaoh and the people of Israel. And here are his words, here are Jesus' words, the mediator's words to mankind, to you and I. 
repent of your sins and believe the good news of this redemption. Friends, this is the surprising good of suffering. It brings us to an end of ourselves, trusting in ourselves, and, and put, helps us to put our trust in, in the only one who can relieve us of our suffering, the only one who can make sense of our suffering. Jesus went through suffering that we could never imagine, physical, mental, emotional, separation from God, forsake, being forsaken by his own best friends. And all of that, he went through that suffering in your place, and God accepted him as his beloved. God said, well done, good and faithful servant. And as you are in Christ, you put all of your hope in him alone to save you from your sins. That well done is for you. Friends, there is a surprising path to suffering through obedience. There's a sinister side to suffering. The evil one wants to use it. But there is a surprising good of suffering as you look to the Lord Jesus you know, to return to that story I started out with, eventually Sheldon and Davy went on to study at Oxford after World War II. And this is where they met C.S. Lewis and, and eventually met Christ. But a, a thing happened when Davy became a Christian. Some of her love was diverted from Sheldon to Christ. You know, and Christ began to break this shining barrier they had erected around their love. And while this was good and normal for Davy, it did not feel good for Sheldon. He saw it as a betrayal of sorts, right? He began to be jealous of God. And, and, and after all, they, they had promised to never let anything come and disrupt their, their love. And for him, this, this was suffering. This is exactly what the evil one wants to do, is to take it and cause you to believe that, that he does not love you. That suffering can take away the love of God. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes in his letter to Sheldon. One way or another, the thing had to die. That was their love. Perpetual springtime is not allowed. You are not cutting the wood of life according to the grain. There are various possible ways in which it could have died, but both parties went on living. And then he says this, you have been treated with a severe mercy. Sheldon goes on to say, I would have rather had our love ended by death than by hate, but this is too much. If her death did, in truth, have these results, it was precisely a severe mercy. She would have been content, he says. She would have been content in all this because she trusted Christ alone. But for him, it took her death. Ironical as it must seem to make me content in her turning her gaze from me to the eternal fountain. I cannot escape the impression that somebody was being very gentle with us. Perhaps she had to die for me, for love, for God. And I had to live with grief for God. But he was perhaps as gentle with us both as he could be. Friends, the severity of suffering is meant to drive you into the arms of the one who is merciful and loves you. Suffering often is a severe mercy that is driving you to him. And when you get to him, 
you will have more grace and more love than you ever expected. In Jesus Christ, you will find more mercy and it will outweigh the suffering that you have ever experienced. Friends, this, this suffering that we have seen, it shows us our lack of self-sufficiency and our need for an all-sufficient Savior. Put all your trust in Him and be made well. Let's pray.